Welcome to Points of Information, the debating podcast by the Debaters Association of Victoria, where we try to impart tips and tricks at our school's competition and JSP competition debaters. At the end of the year, we, the focus is mainly on the JSP, which means we will be looking at some of the basics and some of the simple stuff in today's podcast. And this will be the final podcast for the year. Thank you for listening to us. And for our final podcast, I would like to introduce our three lovely members of the panel here today. First off, we have our amazing president, JB. Hello. I hope you're all well out there. We have another familiar voice, that of Joel. Hello, I'm back. Yay. And finally, the very flamboyant Jesse. I don't know if flamboyant's the right word, but thank you anyway. It absolutely is. And you should be very familiar with my voice if you're a returning listener. Hi, I am Alexander, the Media and Publications Officer. So let's get straight stuck into it. We are in the middle of the JSP competition. So that means it's the second podcast in a row where I think we can go over some of the simple things and some of the very base, the bottom of the pyramid stuff that we build the rest of our debates on top of. And even if you are a more senior or a more advanced debater, it never hurts to go over some of the simple stuff and some of the basic stuff to make sure you're doing it right because this is the foundation that the rest of your debate is based on. So I thought we'd get started with some structure and with some signposting. Okay, maybe I'll get started. There's three things about signposting that I think it's important to remember. The first is that you do need to do it in your speeches. And that even if you're thinking on your feet, you still need to put signposts in and you need to put signposts in regardless of the complexity of the debate. They make the debate much easier to follow. That's a really obvious point. Second thing is that the signpost should be fairly simple. That is, you shouldn't spend too much time explaining what you're going to do. You should be efficient about signposting. And then the third bit, which is really the hardest bit, is that the signposts have to be meaningful. So... It's not just about telling the audience what's going to be in your speech and saying, here are my three points. It's about dividing your speech into three points where each point is meaningful and contributes to the debate and is genuinely a reflection of the kind of core issues of the debate and where you're talking about them in a meaningful order. So signposting isn't just like a kind of bureaucratic thing where you just write down everything you're going to talk about like the table of contents of a book when we assess signposting we're actually looking at how well you divided up the different parts of your speech good signposting is like having a good nav man it tells you where you need to go when we're going to get to the next thing we're now doing the next thing it's really important because it makes sure that we don't have to spend time working out where we are in the debate we know where we are we can now think about your ideas instead and that's the more important thing for us when it's looking at matter because matter is more important than your method so while method is important we want to spend more time thinking about what you're saying rather than where we are and being lost. I think the thing to remember as well is that the key reason that we ask for signposting is that debates sometimes can get very messy. So although the focus of this podcast is on the junior school program and the JSP, I'd also remind our more senior debaters that listen in to make sure that you also include it because you might be talking about very complex things. You might be talking about Syria. You might be talking about um, nuclear disarmament. You might be talking about whether we should protest, whitewashing in Hollywood, you know, serious, big, complex issues. 
But if we lose where you are in the debate as the adjudicator, you've also lost the audience, which means that you failed to persuade and engage us or that we're having a really difficult time in terms of understanding not only where we are in the entire debate, but like what points and what sort of arguments you have identified as the most important and really want to sort of ram home to the audience. Yeah, a speaker who makes a big impact in the debate, particularly in the latter parts of the debate, like the second and third speakers, isn't just a speaker who's got smart things to say. It's a speaker who can analyse the debate in a systematic way. Maybe you're hopefully like analyse the debate in a way that the adjudicator wasn't necessarily expecting, but one that really makes sense. It's really important to practice those signposting skills. And I think that what you need to do is start from the very basics, where you begin your early speeches in the JSP with very clear signposts, where you make sure that every speaker has signposts, regardless of whether it's the first speaker who can prepare most of their speech or the third speaker who's going to prepare very little of their speeches. And then as you go on, I think you need to kind of develop increasingly meaningful signposts. So like one very obvious example is the team split aspect of signposting. And the team split is partly about giving a signpost of like, well, I'm going to say this, and then my second substantive speaker is going to say this. It's also about dividing up the material in a meaningful way, so that saying, well, the first speaker is going to look at one aspect of the topic, and the second speaker is going to look at a completely different aspect of the topic. That gives you breadth in your case, but it also makes the debate easier to follow. So developing the kind of clear team split where you're dividing up thematically is going to be more effective structurally than just saying, well, I drew three points out of a hat and I'm going to give those to the first speaker and then the remaining points will go to the second speaker. I think we should just time out for a second and just consider that a lot of the JSP debaters have never done, you know, high-level debating before and go over a few basic concepts. First of all, what is thematic rebuttal? Thematic rebuttal is where you organise your rebuttal points into groups that are on a particular topic. So if there are a couple of different ways that the debate looked at the issue of health, it might have been it's good for your health in this way, it has these effects on our healthcare system, you want to combine those together so at the end of the day you can say we won the health issue as a whole rather than just having one point at the start about health because the first speaker said it and then one point about health at second speaker because the second speaker said it. It just organised everything more neatly. And then I guess to complete the example, once you've finished health, you'd then move on to maybe finances and you'd talk about all of how you have won the argument from a finance point of view or an economics point of view. And that would incorporate the arguments of the first speaker who was talking about how expensive something was and the second speaker was talking about how much money people don't have. Yeah. And then you're combining all your ideas into main key themes, and hence the word thematic. You signpost those themes at the beginning of the speech so the audience knows what the themes are going to be. And it's really useful for the adjudicator because the adjudicator will often say, well... On, I, on the finance theme, I thought the teams are pretty even and I wasn't really sure whether... I wasn't really persuaded one way whether it will cost too much or not enough or whatever. But on the health issue, I was very persuaded that the proposal would be good for our health and that was the strongest issue in the debate and that's why this team won. And that's like a very, very common method of reasoning that adjudicators will do. And it helps the adjudicator identify core themes in the debate if you tell them what the themes are. I have a question. So we've talked about signposting in terms of like first and second speakers who potentially have prepared the majority of their speeches. 
Third speakers also have to incorporate that, and that can be quite difficult because they're writing their speech on the fly while other people are talking. How do you like third speakers to structure or like signpost their speeches? Do we prefer themes or do we prefer questions? I don't think there's actually a better approach because the questions are really kind of themes as well because the questions aren't just like random questions. They're addressing key aspects of the debate. I quite like the question aspect of the debate although sometimes you end up not really answering the question. And the themes, I think, if you're rebutting a theme, we want to hear a kind of underlying core rebuttal to the theme as well as kind of like nitpicks. So if your theme is economics on a proposal about, you know, introducing a new policy, if you're on the negative side, we want the underlying core rebuttal that the economic, like the gist of the economic theme is that this is going to cost too much or something like that. Whereas if you put like 10 random points about cost under that economics heading, then you're not necessarily doing an effective, you're not structuring your speeches internally. One thing it's important to remember is that structure isn't just about how you signpost the, the speech or how you divide material up between speakers. Your points need internal structure as well. And that's why we talk about things like a teal kind of structure where you have topic and explanation and evidence then link back to the topic. That's because your points internally need to have structure. And even your sentences need to have logical structure so that they have a kind of beginning and a middle and an end and don't just stop randomly. Structure doesn't just mean the macro structure of the debate. It also means the micro structure of what you're saying on a sentence, paragraph, argument level. Um, at all of those levels, things need a logical structure. For those of you, though, that maybe aren't necessarily dealing with themes in your rebuttal, with signposting at third speaker, the most important thing is to state clearly what point you are addressing and what point it links to in your case. We ask you to compare things as part of your rebuttal. So you need to be really clearly saying the negative team brought us this point about health. We are now going to address this point. It makes it so much clearer for adjudicators to go, we see that you are now responding. We see what you're responding to. We see how these issues link up. It makes it really clear. And then you say at the end of that, I've now finished dealing with this point. I'm moving to the next point of rebuttal I want to do. Yeah, that's something I would certainly encourage third speakers that I see frequently as well is that they'll have a signpost at the start. So let's say, take, for example, they'll have the questions. Um, is there a problem? Um, what is the best solution to the problem and why is our solution better than the opposing team? But then they will fail to come back to those sort of key questions sort of a third of the way through their speech. They'll just kind of bleed into each other or they'll get distracted. Making sure that you can come back to those strong topping sentences, those strong signposts and say, I'm now going to move on to the question of why is our solution better than the affirmative or why is our solution better than the negative team? Um, is a really good way to ground the debate and also to really recapture the audience's attention and say, we're now moving to the next phase of my um, speech, the next question that we have to answer um, for us to be an effective and persuasive debater. Yeah, if we take it from that sophisticated level to the back to the JSP level and look at what the beginning debater should do, like one thing that you absolutely need to do if you're like the third speaker in the JSP is to um, prepare a structure for rebutting each point and 
at the beginning, it's going to be something fairly cliched, probably like, well, the opposition has put forward this point. This is wrong because, and that sounds obvious. And you, you might be thinking, well, why am I going to do this? But then when you've got 10 points to rebut in your speech, they are really hard to follow. And it becomes like, you know, where there's a quiz in the newspaper and you get the answers to yesterday's quiz and you're looking at the answers, but you can't really remember what the questions were. And the answer is like one, yes, two, Syria, three, every day, you know, and like nobody can remember what the questions were. And sometimes you can guess what the questions were, but you can't always do that. So if you're a JSP speaker and you're working on rebuttal, make sure that you have a structure for identifying each point you're rebutting. That's really important. With practice, you'll get more sophisticated at doing that. But if you're starting off, it's really important to do that. Besides which, rebuttal is hard at the beginning and you need a lot of practice to rebut well. Giving yourself a structure for identifying rebutting points is going to be really, really helpful. There's a kind of unofficial acronym that we sometimes use if we're trying to identify things within a debate that someone, I think, that a few debaters and adjudicators are aware of. I think it's SHEEP. If I remember correctly, can you remind me, Joel, what they stand for? There's sheeped and sheeps, which stands for social, health, economic, environmental, political, science or technology. That's just one of the many acronyms people use to remember different I'm glad things. Glad we came up with sheeps. Um, and the thing to remember is that you don't have to have all of those. But if you're struggling to like think of like groupings of topics or groupings of ideas, you can use that but I would strongly encourage you not to go through all of those. Pick the three most important or the two most important and spend some time analysing those. It's useful in prep to know about those types of themes because then you can kind of say, well, maybe these themes will come up. And one simple way of kind of organising your thematic rebuttal, I imagine it with palm cards, but it doesn't have to be with palm cards. You just stack up your palm cards. You have a stack of cards on the health stack. You have a stack of cards on the economic stack and things like that. And that's like, it doesn't, make all the problems with thematic rebuttal go away. But if you can predict what the themes are going to be, your organisation is going to be way better and your speech is going to be smoother. And I think that's harking on one of a fairly simple concept, and that is with very, very different and diverse topics, you are going to get the same sorts of themes. You're going to keep on hearing the same base things. You know, it, it, there are many different topics where personal choice is an issue. And this can be everything from, well, uh, what have we had in JSP? Personal choice has been an issue with junk food in schools. You know, it's like you, you should be allowed to choose which food you can have to things as far as, you know, a military service topic, completely different. Whether we should allow kids to participate in like violent sports or something like that. <laughs> things like that. And we keep seeing the same themes. So if you're ever struggling to look for themes, just keep looking at the bigger picture because eventually you'll come back to one central idea that you can nearly apply to nearly any topic. And it makes the whole process of finding where that rebuttal is a whole lot easier. It doesn't always work because one of the JSP topics is you value literature more than science. And finance, um, not necessarily absolutely perfect for those. So it's, it's part of preparation for the debate to think about where the rebuttal's going to go and to think about what the key themes of the opposition side are going to be. So for the sake of doing a bit of show, don't tell, I guess, can do any of you have a great example of what a good signpost would look like or sound like rather if you were the first speaker and you were introducing this podcast, how would you open it? Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to today's podcast. My name's Jesse, and today I am going to be talking about signposting and why it's important. 
Um, I'm next going to address structure and why we think that that is um, really important and persuasive to debating uh, before concluding my team's speech. I think that's a good example, but we can still kind of think about bits you could cut out. Uh, remember that the signposting has to be really efficient. And then so we can say, well, does Jesse need to tell us his name's Jesse? We've heard his name's Jesse before. So maybe that bit can be cut out. Jesse was repeating why things were important. And I'm going to show you why it's important. That was said like multiple times. Um, and obviously he's just speaking off the cuff and it only took 10 seconds to say. So it's not really a big deal. But it's important to kind of nitpick a little bit because Jesse needs, because I know Jesse talks a lot. He needs like four minutes full of material in his speech. If he wastes like 10 extra seconds saying, here's my name and here's why everything is so important, he's not going to be able to get to the meat of the material. Especially in the lower grades, I find that a lot of the signpost is useless. As the adjudicator, I've just said, we will now welcome the second speaker of the negative team. I don't need you to then stand up and say, hello, I'm the second speaker of the negative team. I think the point there is... In your signposting, we don't really want to know what you're about to do. If you're the third speaker saying, I'm going to rebut the other team, thank you. Focus on your arguments. That's what we're there for and that's what we want to hear. Mm -hmm. What will you be talking about? I'm going to be talking about the impacts this will have on families financially and the impacts this will have on families at a social level. Yeah. That's a lot more helpful because I know you're... you that whatever speaker you are are talking about families as opposed to the next speaker in your team which might be talking about business and you're going to address the social and the financial aspects of that and that's way more helpful than hello i'm going to be your second speaker for today etc etc another thing is that the signposts themselves can have a persuasive element so say the third speaker you're doing a thematic approach and you can say my themes are going to be health education and finance but you can also put a persuasive element into those signposts by saying, firstly, I'm going to show you why our proposal is better for your health. Secondly, I'm going to show you why our proposal costs less. And thirdly, I'll show you why proposal is better at educating people. And that brings a persuasive element to the signposting, which I think is nice. It doesn't necessarily prove your arguments, but I think it it makes it sound less bureaucratic and it makes more it sound like more emphatic and more part of your argumentation. Okay, now that we've hit that nail on the head, let's move across to the next topic for today's podcast, brainstorming. So, I am very hard line in the way I like people to brainstorm, and I think it's really important to brainstorm properly so that you have enough material to talk about and you have enough different things. One of the tools that you can use is what we were talking about just about two minutes ago when we mentioned sheeps or sheep. It's a really good tool for you to look at a bunch of different elements and see what applies in the debate. And what you do is you look at what the element is, so society, how does this particular topic affect society, is this going to help my argument or not? The other option is to do stakeholders. Now, you probably will have heard of stakeholders uh, in your training session as people or groups of people that are affected by a particular topic. So if we're doing the topic that boxing should be banned. Boxers are affected, the families of boxers are affected, the audience of boxing is affected, manufacturers are affected. There are lots of different people that are affected by this topic, and each of those could be turned into a different argument for you to use. I think there's also other approaches that you can use as well. So if you're just starting out with debating and this is literally your first ever debate, the first thing that I would encourage you to do is do an individual brainstorm by yourself. So literally just list all of the ideas that you can before you talk to your teammates um, and simply write that down on a piece of paper somewhere and get each member of your team to do that. 
then come together after about two minutes and start going through and sharing those resources and those arguments, but then crossing them off everyone's list so that you don't have people repeating and wasting time. I think that's also a really effective point when you're doing secret topic preparation as well and brainstorming there, that if you go around and you start with your first speaker, then your second speaker, then your third speaker, by the time you come to your third speaker, they should only have a few points left in terms of like ideas because your first and second speakers should have brainstormed them already and you've crossed them off your list. The only thing that I would caution against this is that Sometimes this can get quite messy and it can be like individual issues, whereas again, focusing on themes or stakeholders can often bring out more significant ideas. And also, as we talked about before, allow you to structure your case a bit better. But if you're absolutely struggling and you just want to do, you know, individual ideas or just get everything down on the page, because some people find that more useful, that's something you can do as well. I do really want to emphasize you need to come back together as a team while you are doing your brainstorming. The first reason is simply we see a lot of teams where the first speaker will talk about health and then the second speaker will also talk about health and that really impacts what the second speaker is contributing to the debate but also you need to be able to understand and defend the arguments of all the speakers that come before you if you're the third speaker of the affirmative you need to defend the case that has been brought up by your first and second speakers so you should have a full understanding of the arguments they're using and why they're using them and what they're built on and so by having that understanding your rebuttal is more effective and you can do more of that contrasting that we want you to do. Um, one thing, if you just zoom back to podcast number two, that was we went through and we spent like 15 minutes brainstorming a topic and developing it. So, And what happened was that I remember it because I was there and we had Alex and Izzy and Elmira as a team. And then I was the kind of extra person that was in the room saying, do you think this is a really good idea? How persuasive are those arguments? What is the first and second speaker going to say? And that was really useful because that was, I took on the role of guiding the brainstorming and kind of helping everybody organize their arguments. So I didn't think of many arguments, but I was there kind of telling them where to put things and things like that. And then when I listened back to the podcast, I thought, oh, there were plenty of things that we should have done. And if we'd had Joel on board, we could have had sheeps um, just bounding in the room and impressing us with their wool. It's a good example of just how you can brainstorm and the types of questions that are good brainstorming questions to ask. So I think another thing that I'd like to add to this sort of brainstorming as well is that I would throw everything out again. So it's not just the case of, you know, even if you think something silly, even if you think it's something small, if you're really struggling to come up with material, then you can always use that and you can always use your manner to try and make that smaller issue seem more significant. So that's something that, again, if you're struggling with particular ideas or stakeholders that you can always come back to. The thing that I'd also encourage, again, from that sort of process of writing everything down and or even with the themes and the stakeholders is to also give yourself time to edit it back as well, because you do not have the time to talk about all of the sheep and all of the, you know, the woolly animals that have come into your um, debating preparation session. It's always a case of editing it, editing it back and going, what are the most significant? Who is affected the most deeply or who is affected um, the broadest? So who is the largest number of people affected or who is affected the most? So, for example, in the boxing debate that Joel raised a couple of minutes ago, 
boxers obviously are the most significantly affected people because that's their sport that's their livelihood potentially manufacturers of boxing equipment are further down the list and could be grouped into a broader sort of economic argument in terms of the surrounding industry that's affected by it. I don't think any listener is ever going to forget the SHEEP acronym with the amount of SHEEP we've been talking about in the last few minutes. Let's try and do a bit of brainstorming on the flight. Maybe not quite as in-depth as episode two, uh, but we'll do a quick uh, go over with the whole SHEEPs or Sheep's process, which Joel will guide us with the topic that public transport should be free for all users. So the first S stands for social. Is there a social or societal effect that comes from this? How will this change, say, class structure or people who are maybe in different groups or in different regions of Australia? It's easier for people that can't afford cars. Pensioners can save money specific part of society that benefits. Yeah, it increases mobility for people who are poor. Uh, it, it also, I guess, unfairly affects people that live further away from public transport infrastructure as well. So there is the flip side to that. We start seeing a case where the more mobile people have the better opportunities and you can trace those out as a tree following train lines and bus routes. The next letter is H for health. Is there a health impact of this? I would argue that you could say that there was a health impact because more people would be using public transport and so contagious illness might spread more easily. It's not necessarily the strongest argument, but it's a good one to have in your back pocket but in case really you don't think of something. there's a plus side, which is that if people use public transport more, in theory, hopefully, carbon emissions will decrease or not increases fast, and that has long-term health benefits for lots of people. Better air quality. And the thing I would say is with, you know, everyone loves talking about obesity. It's a very easy argument to hit the nail on the head, but you're giving people, you know, the 10 minutes of mild walking they get walking to and from the train station or the bus stop, which you don't get if you walk the 10 seconds to your garage and then the other two minutes from the parking lot to your office. Yeah. I have to say, I think the emissions argument is the best. Probably the better better of them Um, there. But the other ones still affect health and Mm. it's it's worth thinking about. So while we're on that topic, we'll move to one of the E's, which is the environment. And so we could definitely launch the same argument there, there, but also focusing on like how cars are being taken off. And so we're building less cars and that requires less resources and less petrol. And so there's an extra environmental benefit that we can go through that isn't just the health benefit. Here, I think it's really good to have really good and clear connecting sentences so that if we have public transport that's free, more people are going to use it. Therefore, they are not likely to use their cars. Less cars on the road means a better environment. Obviously, you can flesh that out and explain that a little bit further, but making sure that you've got those strong connecting sentences to actually link and step the adjudicator and the audience through that thinking. So it's not just simply the case of saying, this is going to lead to a better environmental outcome. It's because that we're removing cars from the road. That's the environmental outcome that's beneficial. The next E is for the economy or economics and what sort of money effects this is going to have both on people and the wider society. Yeah, well, we'd have to do the math. Someone has to pay for it. We would have to do the math to work out exactly what the cost is going to be. But if something that you used to pay for is going to be free, somebody is still having to pay the bus drivers and things like that. The taxpayer will pay for everything, (laughs) won't we? So somebody is going to have to pay, and that means some way of gathering tax or 
reallocating revenue is going to have to occur. Obviously, if we're on the affirmative, we're going to say, that's fine, it's a good idea, the benefits outweigh the disadvantages. But if we're on the negative, we can look at all of the kind of flow and effects and say, well, if we spend up on this, we're going to be spending less on something else. Is this really fair because people use public transport to such different extents? So, And people of different extents of being able to afford public transport for someone who's on the pension having a yeah, free public transport yeah. is a really big business. But for the people working in office buildings in central Melbourne, yeah. with their wage, you'd hope they'd be able to afford public yeah. transport. And then there's the question of, well, was public transport too expensive to begin with or is the cost okay? We already have concessions for public transport and then we're going down like a whole complicated rabbit warren of arguments about I think money. it's safe to say that the economic argument here is probably going to be one of the broadest and you'd want to give that to your first speaker to spend the most time going into and looking into. Absolutely. And as part of brainstorming, you'd have to be on the kind of affirmative side. Well, how are we going to defend this argument? Because the negative side almost certainly is going to tell us it's going to cost too much or be yep. a waste of money. How can we defend it? What kind of reasoning, what kind of statistics can we give them to say it's going to help? You need to war game it. Uh, the economy also can be economy of time as well in terms of if you're going to make public transport free, how do you stage that and how does that happen? Like, does it happen immediately? Does it happen in stages? Um, and also, I think the argument can also be raised that if you're making it free, it doesn't increase or make the public transport necessarily faster. So although it might target and really help people that live in far communities or people that are in poorer um, suburbs that have to travel a long way into the city to work and things like that, yeah that ultimately there's no also advantage potentially in terms of the time of travel. So potentially taking a car could be faster or the infrastructure is there that supports car travel more. And so again, this sort of time economy question, I think is something that also gets floated around. Many arguments also work differently in the short term versus the long term. So one economic argument we can make is that this is going to be a short-term damage. But the long-term, for example, if we avoid some costs of mitigating climate change or something like that, then it's possible for the affirmative to argue um, in the long-term we'll have benefits. It's equally possible for the negative to argue, well, this is only a kind of drop in the ocean and in the long-term it's going to have no change. In the short-term it costs too much. So we can often think about the timeframes of arguments like this and argue short-term, medium-term, long-term is a good way of looking at it sometimes. Our P stands for politics or political, and often this is where I put arguments that are about human rights or about sort of more personal ideas, choice and personal choice, all of that religion. sort of thing, rather than necessary, necessarily party politics. It's more about political systems or political ideas. Well, I mean, I don't, I don't think personal choice comes into it. Just because it's free doesn't mean you have to use it. You might be able to, if this is your interest, make an argument about nationalisation and uh, state yeah. ownership if you know a lot about that or you have a particular affinity for someone like Marx. But most debaters are probably going to avoid that because it's not really the strongest argument or the clearest argument to make. You're better off spending your time making that economic or environmental argument in this case. Yeah, what happens in debating as we go along is that as the debaters get older, they become kind of more politically aware and they're like, I love capitalism, I hate capitalism and all of that stuff. Um, but I think at the JSP level, the political arguments are worth thinking about. But 
um, probably not going to be the key arguments in this debate because they can often be quite abstract. Like if you want to kind of argue why it's great for people to have personal choice or if you want to argue why people who use services should pay for them individually and not through taxation, those are really complicated arguments. They take quite a while to explain and while they can have strong impact in the debate, at the JSP level, it'd be like, you spent two you spent two minutes talking about why personal choice is great, but you never actually talked about trains and buses. Mm. And I think that sometimes that level of abstraction doesn't always work in the simpler debates. Uh, but if you're a JSP student, you'll probably be exposed to kind of political ideologies through things like debating. And then by the time you reach year 12 or something, you might have made up your mind about some of these issues. The political element is really important to some debates and it allows you to talk about things in general principle terms, which I think is really useful. But it doesn't always work in every single debate. The final letter is another S and this one stands for science. What sort of scientific benefits are we going to get from this research benefits, development benefits? It's an interesting question in this topic because um, hopefully we want public transport which is good and efficient and not just free. So one argument is, well, which system better encourages like technical innovation, like a super fast train or, you know, a really efficient method of transport or good routes. So there are all sorts of different planning Bi things. Biofuels and buses. Absolutely. So plenty of ways. one side is like, well, if people pay for it, we can afford more investment. Whereas if it's free, we just end up using the same old cheap services and low quality and, you know, they emit more on people don't like them as much. And so we can kind of balance the efforts of investment in modernising public transport versus public transport accessibility, which is like an interesting argument. I think there's an interesting argument for the negative team to also say that if we're focusing on public transport, we maybe don't focus on the science and technological advances of cars. So we don't look at things like self-driving cars or hybrid cars. Um, which I think is something that's increasingly interesting. And in a country like Australia, where we have huge distances potentially between large population centres, I think it's an interesting argument for the negative team to run in terms of whether this affects the science and technological development around hybrid cars and uh, self-driving cars. So increasingly, that's becoming a more interesting part of the market. And does that mean that if we're focusing on making public transport free, that we don't spend as much time and energy developing those types of technology, which could also have the same environmental benefits, the same sort of ecological and um, societal benefits, but from an individual's perspective rather than from like a group sort of public transport perspective. Yeah, but then there's a the whole issue that the public transport fees might just be spent on paying managers or they might be spent on something else entirely, like building a golden statue of a politician. I love how we're getting so intense into all the details Does of what free public transport would entail. License? Let's tone it back away from free public transport and start saying, from a sheep's point of view, I think that's a good example of how you can take a topic that none of us have hopefully had pre-thought for and gone in and tried to work out where the arguments are. And I'm hoping that you as debaters out there will now be able to look at some of your upcoming topics and do the exact same thing. Look at look through sheeps, look for where those arguments are and bring those into bring those into turning them into your arguments. And don't forget to structure them and don't forget to signpost. Do you know what a sheep's favourite um, train station is? Is, is it Wollongong? No, it's, it's Balaclava because they're made out of wool. <laughs> I think Wollongong is better because it's got wool in it. That is obviously far better. I just thought... Both of the jokes are terrible. Please stop so we can cut this okay. out. As I said, we won't be having a podcast in December because school's winding up. 
year 12s have already gone, devs winding up. So that's the last you'll hear from us until probably February when Taiwan goes back. But before then, I thought we'd leave with one thing, which is it's the end of the year. Yay! How, how was it? What did we think? Well, this was my first year as an adjudicator. I actually got to start and move through the ranks and have a go at all of it. And it was really interesting and seeing all the different students with their different ideas and some really great debates. One of them was a round five A grade debate at Ivanhoe on a really tough topic where they did really well. And it's been really good to try and develop people during JSP. In Thomastown, where I was training, it was really good to see the students every week and see them grow. And that's what we want at the end of the day. The important thing is that you start somewhere and wherever that is, whether you start at a 76 or you start at a 73, we move you up as you go through your career. That's actually a really good point. And I like this idea of perspective of constant improvement and, you know, challenging yourself to like take an extra step and try and develop your debating skills and focus on improvement, not necessarily on, um, you know, taking home a win. I too also saw a fantastic debate in round five of Ivanhoe. And thank you for the reminder, Joel, uh, where I saw two teams that I've seen many times over many years, because I've been doing this for far too long. And to see the fact that one of those teams had progressed significantly and that they were quite sad to finish up with year 12 debating um, was something that will stick with me because I think that they did a really good job of engaging with a, a quite weird topic and they did a really good job of engaging with that and connecting it to like broader issues. Um, one thing that happened this year that I think was very impressive was that we did a lot of regional competitions, I think more than ever before. Um, and they really And we haven't the, finished them. They, no, they're still going. Um, and we covered more of Victoria than we have before. And I think that it's great to talk about the people at the top end who are kind of elite debaters and improving their skills, but also giving people who haven't had debating opportunities before the chance to debate is really extremely important. And it's one of the most important parts of what we can do at the DAV. So um, I'm really happy about the regional um, debating program this year. And hopefully if you're outside of metropolitan Melbourne, you might be able to listen to this. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to promote this heavily down in Warrnambool tomorrow. Oh, the bull. Yes, <laughs> three out of the four people who are participating in this podcast are literally going to Warrnambool tomorrow and today um, for a regional competition. And if you are listening and you are a teacher or a student at a regional school, send an email through to the Debating Association of Victoria. Um, it's and debater at dev.com.au. Excellent. Um, and we can see what we can try and arrange. We try and group stuff together so that regional schools can come together and can debate against each other. And it's a great way to build their networks and also provide them with a co-curricular opportunity that they might not already have. While we're talking about opportunities, I always have to plug Debate Camp because it is my favourite of the DAV events that we run. And next year, we're going to be running more of them than ever before. And so if you are a student or a teacher interested in developing, particularly we're going to do some ones in summer that are going to be exciting and fun. And so if you're interested in coming and doing those, let us know, debater at dav.com.au. That's where you can send all your emails to make sure that you don't get left out of opportunities. All your emails, unless it's about the podcast. If you'd like to hear something when we get started again next year, Please feel free to send in all your feedback, suggestions, comments, and all that sort of stuff to media at dav.com.au. Uh, that way it gets sent to the people responsible for managing the podcast rather than the people responsible for managing 
Adjudicators, yes. yes. But I think if you get it wrong, don't worry, they'll forward it to the right place. It, it's been a great year. I think I, I, this year there have been some truly standout debates that I've seen. I was lucky enough to see the grade A grand final winners multiple times, and they are very persuasive debaters and at the peak of their game and, you know, something that I think that they should be very proud of. Okay, so that's all we have time for. I think we're about to get kicked out of the room, <laughs> but that's all right. We'll be back next year. Uh, if you are a debater, I hope to see you again next year. If you are a year 12 that has just come out of your English exam as we are recording now, by the time this goes out, your exams will probably be over, in which case you can go to our website and sign up to be an adjudicator next year. It's a great way to earn money on the side while you're studying at uni or at TAFE or wherever you might end up. And it's a great way to keep engaged with the debating community and learn a lot of new interesting things. If you are still in school, please come back to our competitions next year. If you are still in school, not in metropolitan Melbourne, please get in touch with us. But that is all we have got time for. So it's a little bit early. I'm sorry, but have a Merry Christmas, a Happy New Year. And we look forward to seeing you bright eyed, bushy tailed in term one 2020. Thank you for listening. Goodbye from me. See you next time. Bye guys. Bye. Bye. Happy holidays, folks.